0: Well, here we are. It's the 27th of May 2020. As promised, the Kevin Prendeville show is back and ready to go. As the day starts out, it's going to be a little temperate this morning. And then, we'll get showers coming in this evening and throughout probably the rest of the week. A little disappointing, but hey, it's certainly better than catching the coronavirus or, unfortunately, the bug that has destroyed the U.S. economy. Now, We're going to talk, of course, about economic changes. We're going to talk about the effect this has had on globalization and and why America needs to get back to work from that angle. So don't worry, we'll talk about coronavirus plenty, just like everybody else. But I did also want to touch on on a few different topics uh, this time around, including one, Uh, light topic that we're actually going to start out with this morning, and that one's going to be on Tom Brady's Cadillac Escalade. Now, I know, I know, being from Boston, you're going to expect me to freak out just because it's Tom Brady's. Well, maybe, just a little bit, but really I want to talk about why something like this would actually be a decent investment. Now, of course, it's $350,000, so especially in time like this, there's pretty limited amount of people who are actually going to be able to potentially buy this thing, and it is at auction, so that would and will go up. I mean, this thing could probably reach three quarters of a million, million dollars, but trust me, it probably has earned it. So, we're going to talk about it a little bit more here on the opening salvo. So, Tom Brady put up his Cadillac Escalade for auction, and This was part of his deal with Peyton Manning, Tiger Woods, and Phil Mickelson as they played golf over the weekend. And the two of them, both he and Peyton Manning, were going to put up their uh, customized caddies for uh, auction, and the proceeds are going to go to a charity. And so this was all premeditated and everything, but of course you can really get the sense that that Brady actually liked this thing based on his statement, which was that parting with his uh, Becker ESV, which is a very high-end customized Cadillac, won't be easy. From day one, it became my sanctuary from outside the noise. Brady said this on uh, their their site. Uh, I took pride in picking it out, all the customizations from the trim of the seats to the color of the rug. I mean not only is an Escalade one of the nicest SUVs you can buy out there, but to get it customized and customized for an athlete is that is some as high profile as Tom Brady is something that is actually going to appreciate. It becomes more like an art piece and less like a vehicle. And the reason that I bring this up, again, it's not because I want to freak out because it's Tom Brady, but I did want to point out that vehicles are not great investments. They're money pits. That's what they are. I've got a '82 Continental that was passed down to me from my father, and I love it. I love driving it around. It's a cool-looking car. It's got this big grill. It's it's this long thing. It's 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 like driving your living room. It's the most it's the most uh, uh, comfort I've ever had in a car and probably will ever have. It's just it's a nice vehicle, fully loaded for everything you could get in the '80s, and it's done nothing but cost me money. And it's not something that I can turn around and sell for a lot of money. It's only worth probably a couple thousand dollars. But for me, it has sentimental value. Um, You know, any gift from my parents, especially that one, which the car actually has a greater history with my family, and the fact that my grandfather was very good friends with the person who bought it originally, way back in 1982. So for us and for the family, it has great value in that aspect, and that's why I've held on to the car. But like my daily driver, I drive a, a Ford Taurus and it's a great car. I've really not had any issues with it. Um, and, and it has about, I think it's over a hundred thousand miles now and that's great. But you know, I bought it for gosh, I think it was 12,000 when it, when I bought it, I bought it in 2016. It's 2012. Uh, you know, I'll probably only be selling it for four to six, whenever that happens. Um, you know, a couple years from now. And, you know, I've gotten the value out of that. I've been able to uh, take it all around the state and I've put a lot of miles on it, but I lost, I bought a depreciating asset. And what's worse is some people, you know, they go and they finance a car. So they take a a loan out on a depreciating asset uh, and and leasing a car isn't great. But we know from opportunity costs that buying a car with cash isn't so great either because you could have invested that money in the market and gotten a rate of return or invested that money so that it compounds for you and in your favor. And you also traded that away by buying the car with cash. So vehicles are really, really tough to make out on, to win with. This is a little different. Because it's highly customized, so you have the economic factors playing in, uh, playing for you, and the fact that it's unique, you know, there's only one, it was driven by a high-profile, in this case, athlete, but if this was, uh, you know, if this was John F. Kennedy's, then it would have also been worth a lot, because he's a high-profile uh, political figure. So it has that name brand, if you will, it has... You know, insane customization, including uh, uh, two tables, an internet router, so you get internet wherever you are. You have um, a 32-inch television in there. It's got all of these, these things that add to the value and its uniqueness. And so this, if somebody waited for a number of years, maybe until, you know, Brady's retired and in the Hall of Fame, and after a number of years, if, if if whoever buys this could probably turn around and sell it for, you know, a million or so, maybe more depending on what they buy it for, because there's only one of them. There's only one of these that exists and was driven by or purchased by Tom Brady. So in this case, it makes this car unique, but it it comes back to the idea that not everything is blanket in finance, and sometimes, sometimes we forget that. We like to think that there's a a one-size-fits-all solution for the economic games, And really, it comes down to strategy. And it's times like these with the coronavirus and the unfortunate lockdown of the economy that really test people's financial plans. You know, if you're 100% invested in the market, that's great. But if you're not in the right place when this pandemic hits, well, unfortunately, plenty of people have felt that impact. But I wanted to give you some food for thought here on the opening salvo. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the impact that the American economy has not only in the world, but why it's important for the U.S. economy to get back up and running as fast as we can from a geopolitical standpoint. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Kevin Prendeville Show. The weather is still nice. Nashville is still locked down. And Tennessee is still hot. But that hasn't changed the fact that we still have... A couple topics here to tackle. The first that we're going to cover is going to be the geopolitical ramifications for our continued lockdowns. Now, I want to take you back before the coronavirus epidemic, and it seems like a better time, a more idyllic time, and it was. But our main focus as a country, or what it was starting to shift towards, was defending ourselves from China. and. Some people call it divesting ourselves from China, and, and this is the best way to put it because we had started, and this goes back to the 1970s under Nixon. In order to drive a wedge between the Soviets and the Chinese, we started having uh, businesses get sent over there. Of course, for the cheaper labor and for the abundance of factories, it was more cost effective for companies, large companies with great manufacturing jobs, to move over there where they could essentially pay their their employees, thing, uh, wages that Americans would not accept. And that sounds cold-blooded, and it, it really is, and it crushed our inner cities, and that's really where you see the uh, decline of places like Detroit and Cleveland and Cincinnati and the, the old Rust Belt as a lot of the stable manufacturing jobs ended up leaving. However, it strengthened China, and it also helped... Drive a wedge between the two communist countries. You had uh, the Soviets, obviously, were were the communists, and the Chinese are communists. But there was a dispute over uh, a large swath of land, kind of where China. If you can picture in your mind's eye where China has this little kick up, it looks it looks almost like like Maine, where. It kicks up and it shares its border with Russia, and then Russia comes and swings down um, and reaches the Pacific Ocean. That wasn't always there. And it goes back even before into the 1850s when the Russians were expanding their empire, long before they were communist, where they, uh, they signed a treaty with China to take much of that land without firing a shot to convince the Chinese that they would protect them from the British and other imperial nations. And then the Russians uh, ignored that part of it and uh, just took the land for themselves. And so the Chinese, for the longest time, wanted that land back, especially under uh, Mao Zedong. And his new China was going to be strong, and it was going to take it back, and it was going to fight off the Westerners. Now, England gave them some uh, form of control over Hong Kong peacefully, so the Chinese naturally thought that the Russians would do the same. But being the dictators that they were, the Russians refused, and that's when President Nixon at the time used that tension between the two countries that was already there to split the two off, almost like tearing a piece of Velcro apart, where it would weaken both Russia and China as they wouldn't want to call on the other uh, should something erupt between the U.S. and the Soviets. And... It's for that reason that a lot of our businesses started going over there, and we started propping up the Chinese economy, and in exchange, we ignored a lot of their human rights violations. And that continued all the way up to the present day. But we also started to ignore the damage that China was doing to us, whether it is stealing our intellectual properties, whether it is creating, actually stealing money from us. And that's crazy. This is what they do. They cr- would create these shell companies and essentially fake companies that would invest in in US companies. And then the money uh, that they got from the dividends, they would turn around and send it back to China. They would also create these fake companies and try to get them to go public. And then they go public, they get US investors to put money with them, and they essentially siphon off the money uh, and and have it sent to China. It's it's really interesting strategy, but it also is aimed at hurting the U.S. economy. Because they know they can't fight us just one-to-one uh, militarily. That kind of warfare just simply can't exist anymore. And it ended with the, the warfare... The, the way that countries who were this ideologically opposed... The way that we used to handle it was uh, with, with just outright bloody warfare. I mean, you had some of these spy techniques and, uh, underhanded stuff, but you didn't have, it was a lot more industrialized. We saw it, um, you know, with World War I and the U.S. Civil War and all of the wars leading up to World War II, but when the nukes dropped, when we, uh, completely destroyed Hiroshima and, uh, Nagasaki in the, in 1945, that kind of warfare ended through what is known as mutually assured destruction. That there would be no winner because the entire world would be blown apart. And realizing this, it left only one type of combat uh, around, and that is this kind of underhanded cloak-and-dagger tactics or proxy wars. You see the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1970s, obviously the U.S. and Vietnam and Korea, and then later, of course, warfare changed in the Middle East. We're not there for anything other than uh, counterterrorism activities. But my point here is that the Chinese have been waging a war that we're not willing to engage in for generations at this point. And Trump is really the first president to see this, see it as a threat, and go after it. So, first he started with the tariffs, and I was firmly on the side against the tariffs because I had learned throughout my schooling years the whole time that tariffs don't work. That, and you can look back at articles and my writings from the time, and 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 videos and all that stuff. I was not big on on tariffs because, and I think because accurately, I was taught in school that protectionism doesn't work and tariffs don't work in the sense that protectionism doesn't work, which is an economic policy in which the government attempts to get the people to solely buy the government's products. And I don't mean in a communist way. I mean that only products produced in the U.S. are allowed to be bought by the people. And this usually leads to an increase in labor costs this leads to an increase in product cost some cases like in Spain in the 16 and 1700s it can lead to rampant inflation and for the. US in 1911 and 1912 it can create um, it can also create economic devastation one that actually got Howard Taft uh, uh, unelected in favor of Woodrow Wilson that's another topic for another day My point here is that I was not expecting Trump to use the tariffs in the way he did against the Chinese. And essentially, he used it as cover while he also invited companies to either come back or for smaller companies to pick up some of the slack by cutting taxes and also by making the U.S. seemingly a a safer position to be in. And I think the tariffs actually hurt the Chinese economy uh, uh, more than they are letting on. Of course, they would never be honest with us, but you saw everything from the riots in Hong Kong to before the coronavirus hit there. There were um, some riots in cities that were closer to Russia. And I believe that the Chinese uh, only came to the table because their economy was badly damaged and they needed U.S. support. And it may seem harsh to say we're not going to support them, but really we shouldn't be. They are ideologically opposed to us. They have been attempting to undermine many of our actions for years. They supported genocides in Darfur. They are not a good group of people. Their government is not a good group of people. And the Chinese people know that. And, and that's why so many of them flee and come to the U.S., because they want a better life. And so we're actually doing the most good by attempting to undermine their government. And the, more th- the longer that we stay locked down, the longer that we take to get our engines back online, the more time it gives them to recover. And you don't let an enemy, especially not one that has the capabilities that China does, when you have them down, you want to keep the pressure up. Now, again, this has nothing to do with military action. This is all economic warfare. I mean, you want to start to move companies out of China, and I think some of that will happen. You see Apple's looking for maybe moving to Vietnam or moving to Uh, Indonesia, maybe even India, places where they can still get the same labor costs but don't have the same volatility and dishonesty of the Chinese government. Nor do they have to kowtow to the Chinese government. And again, it'd be great to have them here, but I don't think a lot of the U.S. uh, labor unions would allow the same labor costs, and that would mean that your things like uh, your iPhones and your Androids and your iPads and your sneakers and many of the products that we develop and design even though they are american companies would cost much more if they were made here so it's a win win for us if they move out of china and it may force the chinese government to change and hopefully they would stop murdering people and imprisoning people and the way to do that or the way to get our populace against them is doing what exactly what trump was doing. And so the longer it takes up for us to get back and, and strike back at them, the more time they have to recover, the more time you know we'll have to spend going back to square one. Again, the only way to get the Chinese to the table to sign the treaty that they did with Trump was to damage their economy. But if our economy is weak, especially right now, where I understand the Dow's up, I understand. You know, the economic indicators in some cases are not as bad um, as they could be. But we're in a situation right now after these lockdowns where tariffs could hurt us just as much as they hurt China, if not more. So, I and I don't think we're going to have a V-shaped, V-shaped recovery. I don't think it's going to be an immediate bounce back because you look at the permanent damages that this lockdown has had. It's going to, I think, really hurt commercial real estate space. You may have a second wave in terms of economic uh, crashing as the stimulus money drives up, people don't have jobs, and then they can't afford to pay their rent. They can't afford to pay their rent. That comes back to the person that owns the property. If that person's over over-lever- leveraged, that comes back to the bank. If the bank doesn't have the capital to cover it, it comes back to the Fed, and we need another bailout, and we have a very bad economic situation. It could put a enormous strain on the way that our economy works, especially when it relates to money. So we are out of time with this lockdown, and it's time that we get back to work. We get back to making our economy work. We stop playing games with this really... Not all that serious flu compared to other pandemics. And we start getting back to what's important. Again, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to stay home, stay home. But these draconian lockdowns need to end for more reasons even than just personal, but for the good of a whole lot more people than have ever been affected by the coronavirus. But that uh, that ends that rant for the first segment. When we come back... I want to make an interesting note about a company that is actually starting to crawl back. One that I thought may have been ended. Stay tuned to the Kevin Frunderville Show. Well, I thought I'd end today's show on a more positive note. Well, positive if you own Papa John's stock, because they're actually starting to come back. And now, for those who don't know, Papa John's, it it was started by, it was just a local uh, pizza company, and the owner, I think he was the son of the original owner, has a story about selling his car to help fund the business and buy a proper pizza oven, and from there went on to turn into a franchise worth more than a couple billion. He had a deal with the NFL to be their official pizza sponsor. He was in a bunch of their stadiums, and uh, Papa John's really had grown into an incredible business and then on a conference call with the NFL and i think it had something to do with uh, Colin Kaepernick papa john as he's called uh, colloquially uh, said the n word now i'm not the most politically correct person in the world i think you know that but especially as a as a white person you, you can't say you can't say the n word um, I know that it's a, it's a, a sign of affection or can be the sign of affection in in the black community, and that's fine. But uh, as a white person with the history of the word, what it means, what it can mean racially, that, that that's that is it should be a great sin to that that someone can commit and and it rightfully was. Now, should he have been forced to step down as a CEO? Probably not, but at the same time, I can understand the NFL dropping him. I can understand uh, the hit that Papa John's took for a long while, and it seemed, you know, they scrubbed him for everything because he was the big smiling man on the on the pizza boxes and and all the advertisements he was in and all of this stuff. I can understand getting him off the marketing, off the boxes, off the trucks, because you don't want people who are much who in many cases are rightly offended by the word, but also those who get offended for others, you know, the type you don't want them to automatically associate your business with the guy's face. And the only reason I say that is because Papa John is still a generic enough name that given time, I think people will start to, to forget that. And so long as the quality of the pizza is on par with other fast food places or fast pizza places, um, I think the company could recover. And that's really been tested here with the coronavirus. The company sales in uh, North America, where especially in urban uh, areas in the cities, it's up 33.6%. This is according to the CEO, uh, Rob Lynch, where... He said that other than stores and what which are located in college towns, which sh- saw a uh, drop, the the store in uh, larger cities, especially in New York, I'm sorry, New York was up thirty three and a half percent. It was twenty six point nine percent across the country. That's huge. That's incredible. And it's interesting to hear these stories because Subway, for instance, was crushed when the, when Jared Vogel was, um, actually turned out to be a a pedophile. And people had so associated him with Subway that you feel bad about supporting a business that in turn supports a pedophile. And the same kind of, now, in my opinion, it's worse to be a pedophile than someone who said the N-word, but how good of a person can you be if the n-word, if you're not black and the n-word is in your vocabulary, then again, I don't think it goes to the level of, um, sexually abusing kids, which, I mean, there's a special place in hell, uh, uh, for that person. Actually, I think the devil puts pedophiles one level above Hitler, so that all the worst dictators in the world can, can, uh, Poke them in the in the behind with a uh, 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 with a pitchfork for eternity because these are the are the worst types of people in the world. Now, Subway has not recovered from that. Do I think it's a sin by the company and everyone who works for the the franchises and the franchisees themselves should suffer? No, I don't. Do I think Papa John's should suffer? No, and apparently they're not going to because. You see, with this huge sales spike, I don't they're not a company that necessarily has to leverage a lot of what they own because they are franchised. So a lot of the success is individual. That you have people who, you know, own maybe a lot of them, some maybe own one of them, and they wield a lot of the power within the company's structure, but they don't have to like when they're opening a new store they can get somebody with their own money to to do that for them. They don't have to um they don't have to leverage what they have to go to the bank to open a new store to to, to get the loan to do that or use the company's cash reserves. So this lockdown has been good for certain companies. Now it's it's crushed the retail sector. It's it's gotten rid of some of the rift raft but i think the market would have handled jc Penney and Pier one imports by themselves it's still a disappointing day when when big companies go under like that because you know all of the workers there and and every everyone from the cashiers up to the ceo um has that scarlet letter or they've they've unfortunately lost their jobs that's not a good thing we should never cheer, you know, some people uh, cheer big companies going under. I know uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is one of them who, you know, cheers when, when big companies go down. And, you know, we're a free market. We don't have, to, we don't have the problem of, of monopolies in many cases. We don't have the problems of uh, big companies going down. And, and for the most part, you know, you should look up to people who are able to build companies to that size. And so it's sad when one of them, like a J.C. JCPenney, is as old as it is and it, you know, collapses. But some good news out of this coronavirus is that Papa John's looks like it's going to be back on track after, I didn't think, I didn't think they wouldn't survive, but I thought they'd be severely damaged and it could start, that his comments could have started a downward spiral. Again, much like what we saw with Subway. But that'll do it for today's Kevin Prendeville show. I hope you have a or had a great Memorial Day weekend, and we'll see you on Friday. Keep it locked right here on the Kevin Prendiville show.